Today, I want to talk to you about our appetites. And uh, this is an internal tension that each one of us face because human appetites are wired to want more. The only appetite, our, the only word our appetites know is the word more. And when you think about appetites, uh, you maybe think about food or hunger, uh, but there's lots of different appetites. There's, there's food, there's sex, I'm sure there's others, food and sex, I'm sure there's more, uh, you know, anyway, I think I should move on from that. Um, but we all know, but we do, let's think about, do you all know that there's different kinds of appetites? That there's the below the surface appetites, security, the appetite for security, to have enough money, to have someone who loves you back, enough resources, the appetite to be loved, there's the appetite to be loved. Uh, dude, they're, they're pulling ahead. They're a little early on me uh, over there, but uh, you can fill it in if you're filling in the blanks. Uh, there's the appetite for responsibility. I want more responsibilities, and I want the, my responsibilities to match with my title. There's the uh, desire to be respected. We want recognition for what we've uh, accomplished, uh, more progress, and so on. Now, regardless of what the appetite is, all of our appetites have the same thing going on. It's the desire for more. All of our appetites want more. There's just something inside of us that wants more of whatever it is. So three things about your appetites. Number one, God created them and sin distorted them. God created them and sin distorted them. God created that desire, that drive to see progress, to see good things happen in your life and in the lives of the people you know and love. He created that. But also we see that sin is in the world and evil has distorted those appetites. And so there's something good about our appetites, but there's also something bad about our appetites. The second thing is appetites are never fully and finally satisfied, ever. It's an internal tension that will never go away, no matter how big, no matter what you accomplish. And for those of you who love progress like me, uh, just think about your biggest win in the last month. You accomplished a win, you were winning at something, it was like a big deal, and you're like, yes, I did it. And how long did that feeling last for you? Maybe it lasted a few hours, a few days. And then after a few days, you're like, okay, that's already in the rearview mirror. It's time to focus on the next thing. It's time to focus on the next win. It's, uh, all that is in the rearview mirror. Uh, it happens when we eat a meal. Say you go to the most perfect meal. What's your favorite restaurant? Yell it out because I don't want to spend a lot of time. This R&D. Okay, good. Yeah, French. Someone say French. Wood Ranch. Wood Ranch. Anyone else? So you go and you get the perfect meal. Uh, Bestia, is that top for you guys? Yeah. Uh, cool. This side likes food. I'm not sure what this side is. Taco Bell. Praise Jesus who lives in heaven for Taco Bell. All right. So, you know, you think about it, you have the meal. You eat the perfect meal, and then you're like, I could not eat another thing. And you're like, this is perfect. What happens three hours later? You're in the fridge. You're that person looking at, well, maybe it's just me. Am I projecting on you? Like, you know, but why? Because your appetites are never finally and fully satisfied. And the thing is, is that we think with our appetites, that there's something, there's someone, there's some leadership role, there's some kind of financial purchase that will eventually come along and we will be fully and finally satisfied. And the truth is, that's not true. The truth is, 
We know people who have spent their entire life chasing and believing the lie that their appetites can be fully and finally satisfied. They spend their entire life making decisions based on the lie that they can fill their appetites. You and I both know people like that. Not people in this room. Other people in, in, their, in our world. Number three about our appetites. Your appetites will always whisper now and never later. Always whisper now and never later. Your appetites and your response to those appetites, your response to the whispering appetites in your life will determine the story of your profession. They'll determine the story of your family. And they will determine the story of your life. And if you need an example, look no further than your own parents. Some of your parents blew up their lives because they couldn't get their appetites under control. And some of your parents are doing very well right now. Their lives are in working order because they learned to think about their appetites differently. Look no further than your parents. Now, I am in church world. What does church world mean? Uh, church world means I am, you have your industry, I have my industry. I'm in the church industry. I go to the conferences, I see the people, and they're like, you need this fancy thing. I'm like, yeah, right. I reach thousands, if not dozens of people. Why would I need that? And you go to the conferences, and you do the worship, and you get inspired, and you're around other pastors and ministry leaders, and you're trading ideas, and they're like, ooh, read this book, but don't read that book. And this guy, we don't follow him. Anymore. So I'm in that world. I am in church world. Excuse me. I am in the church world. Now, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't name two people that have lost their churches, that have lost their ministry to bad theology or their theology. However, I can give you an endless list, an endless list, compile an endless list of men and women, but mostly men who've lost their ministries, who've lost their churches, who've lost their influence, lost their families, and some of them have even lost their lives because they couldn't figure out this thing with their appetites. They were unable to manage the tension of their appetites, their desire for more. And here's what we know. If we don't get this right, we don't get this idea of our appetites under control, it really doesn't matter if we get the rest right. This actually matters. If we don't figure out this thing with our appetites, if we don't figure out the voice that speaks to us and says, hey, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, what will happen is, in the end, we will lose what's most valuable to us. We don't figure this out. That's all my time today. See ya. <laughs> no. I'm going to offer you a solution here, and it comes from the story of Jacob and Esau. And uh, Jacob and Esau, they're brothers. And Esau is just a few minutes older than Jacob. And uh, they're very close in age. Esau is a little older. Esau is a little older. And Esau, since he was the oldest brother, he was entitled to something called a birthright. Everyone say it with me. Birthright. Let's do it again. Birthright. One more time. Birthright. Yeah. All right. So in the modern era, we don't have the same concept of a birthright. We, this is a little foreign to us. So we, when we look at this at first glance, may not know what he's talking about. The birthright was something that was given to the oldest son. 
in the family. And, you know, we don't do that anymore, but that's the way it was. And so here's what's included in a birthright. I think we have it on the screen for you. Uh, it is the ancient birthright. What is it? First, it's a big financial inheritance. It's a full family authority, and it's the blessing of God. So what does that mean? Financial inheritance. When dad died and the oldest brother got the birthright, instantly he received two times, and in some cases, three times the inheritance that the other siblings got, simply because of his birth order. So instantly he becomes wealthier just because of his birth order. Number two, he's given authority over the rest of the family. If there's a family dispute, you need a final decision maker. You can't come to an agreement. Like a, you, know, so you can't agree with each other as a family. Oldest brother, who's already richer, steps in and says, this is the decision on behalf of the family. Full family authority. And the third thing at this time is that if you had a birthright, people at this time believed that God was sort of forced to bless you. Now, I'm not sure what I think about that totally, but that's what they believe, that God was forced to bless them. And so into this story, we descend, and into this story, we understand the idea of birthright. Okay, so here, read this with me. It says in Genesis 25, verse 27, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, that's his dad, that's their dad. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So what do we see here? Uh, you know, uh, the, the dad, we see favorites. Dad, the dad's like, Esau, this is my boy. This is my boy. He's, uh, he plays football. He's the star of the team. He goes out and he gets me wild game. If I want rabbit, he goes and gets me a rabbit. He's my boy. I love this guy. And then, he, and then Jacob is kind of like the mother's boy, the mama's boy. He's at home. He's among the tents. Uh, and that's what he does. And so uh, you see it. You already see there's kind of like a favoritism taking place. Esau, oh yeah, this is my guy. And then, you know, Rebecca, his mom's like, oh, this is Jacob. He's my tender little guy. All right. And so that's what we see here. That's important, okay? And then in verse 29 says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, because that's what Jacob does, and Esau came in from the open country famished because he was hunting because that's what Esau does, he said to Jacob, quick, give me some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now, if you didn't grow up with older brothers or an older sibling, this is something that you could miss. But this is fascinating here. It's worth explaining because the writer of Genesis is picking up on something very interesting. Now, when it comes to brothers, if you had a brother or maybe you grew up with an older sibling or a sister, here's what we know. The older brother rarely needs the help of the younger brother. The older brother rarely needs the help of the younger brother. And younger brothers, they kind of are like latching on to the older brother. Take me with you. I want to go here. I want to hang out. Come on. You're kind of, they're kind of like a mosquito. Like, let me please, let me be with you. Let me, let me drive your car. Let me hang out with you and your friends. Let me do all the things with you. Please, please, please. And they're like, just go away. And maybe it's the same with older sisters. I don't know if you had sister, an older sister. But every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a change that happens. And what is it? The older brother actually needs the younger brother. And when they do, they realize that they have the power. They realize that they have the power. And the younger brother's like, oh, 
He needs me. <laughs> I'm going to relish in this moment because this is very rare. It doesn't come often. It doesn't happen often because you actually need me. So in this moment, when the younger brother has the power because the older brother needs him, what does younger brother generally do? He pauses and he thinks, hmm, what's most valuable to older brother? Now, I had some younger brothers, and it was constant. Hey, let me drive your car. Let me go with you with your friends. Hey, can you go on a beer, beer run for me? No, you're 16. I'm not doing that. Hey, let me hang out with your friends. Let, let me sleep in your room. Let me do all these things. And so Jacob finds himself in this situation. Esau needs him. And he's like, I've got the power, baby. So Jacob straight up asks him. He looks to him. Older brother finally needs me. And he asks him for the thing that's most valuable to Esau. He says, Jacob replied, first, first, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you the stew. First, sell me your birthright? Who would do that? Who would trade their future for something as invaluable as a bowl of stew? Who would trade their future? for something as temporary as a bowl of stew? Who would throw away their career? Who would throw away their self-respect? Who would throw away their marriage? Who would throw away the reputation, their reputation with their children? Who would throw away their reputation in the community? Who would throw away their future for something as small and as temporary as a bowl of stew. People do it all the time. Do you know who would throw away their future for a bowl of stew? You would. If it was the right bowl of stew. I would. If it was the right bowl of stew. Appetites. They are never finally and fully satisfied. And this is a tension that every single one of you, and myself included, will deal with every single day of our life until the day we die. And you will be tempted to make a trade to resolve an internal tension that's impossible to satisfy. So what happens in the story? Verse 32. Look, I am about to die. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What good is a, a birthright to me? Look, I'm about to die? Esau, I get it. You're a little hungry. But let's be honest here. You walked into camp. You didn't come in on a gurney with an IV. Like, uh, 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 uh. Uh, you might have low blood sugar. I'm not sure if you know what that is, Esau. Uh, but this isn't even how you die from hunger. And what we see here is that nobody is immune from the dynamics of our appetites. And we're sitting there like, he's like, oh, what good is a birthright to me? Well, first of all, Esau, it's triple the cash, full family authority, and God's forced to bless you. How about that for starters? You know, psychologists have actually studied what is happening to Esau's brain here. Uh, and it's fascinating. And basically, the pattern goes something like this. You see something, you saw an opportunity, 
and then the appetite grew inside you. There was a, and when that happened, there was a chemical change in your brain, and that chemical change is connected to your appetite, and that is called impact bias. Everyone say it, impact bias, thank you. And it takes your hunger, it takes your desire, and it magnifies it, and the brain the brain lies to you. The brain says to you, listen, if I get this thing, if I get this person, if I accomplish this task or this goal, it's going to feel like an eight when in reality it ends up feeling like a two. And this is why we have buyer's remorse. This is where it comes from because if I could just have this car, if I could just have this house, if I could just have this person love me for who I am, the snowflake, that I, if I could just accomplish this milestone, what's happening there is your brain is lying to you. And the second thing that's happening to Esau here is something called focalism. Everyone say it, focalism. All right. And this is when our mind focuses on one singular thing and everything else blurs out. As a young man, I can remember uh, meeting certain uh, women, girls, because I was a young man, I was like a kid, and they were kids. I can remember what they looked like and what they were wearing. I can remember how the wind was blowing and what they smelled like. I couldn't tell you anything else that was going on around me at the time. It's like the whole world was just blurring around me. You remember, you get so focused on the one thing. That's how I remember when I met you. There you were, uh, a swimmer in a swimsuit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we should get married. Go have some of the baby. Um, yeah, every, so a focalism, it's when you get an appetite and you're just so focused on it that everything else around you begins to blur. So we have Esau. He is the victim of impact bias. He thinks that if he gets this stew, it's going to feel like an eight, but really it feels like a two. He's so focused on that red stew, he doesn't even care about what else is going on. His brain is lying to him, and his brain, so the words that come out of his mouth are, who needs a birthright when I can have a bowl of stew? Crazy, but that's what's happening. Verse 33, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath. To him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So Esau actually trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now I think it would be fun to drop into this story. Like, enter some tesseract and drop right into the store and you pop in, whoop, hey. And he's like, hey. And, and it's, uh, it's Jacob and Esau and it's pre-exchange. And you pop in, I pop in and you go, Jacob, this is a really big day for you. I get it. Your older brother needs you. This is really fun. I get it. Esau needs you. And Esau, Esau, listen to me. I know you're famished. I know you walked in, but I just need you to hear this. I got to tell you, Esau. Jacob, I understand. Very important. Esau, I know you're hungry. Esau, listen to me for a second. One day, you're going to have some children. You're going to actually have 12 sons one day. And these sons are going to have very large families. And these families are going to grow and grow and grow, and they're going to become a nation. Esau, listen. I know it looks like good stew, but listen to me. Your, your families are going to grow into a nation, and they're going to 
be the nation, a big nation, and then they're going to make a bad trade with the Egyptians, and they're going to find themselves uh, being uh, enslaved by the Pharaoh in Egypt. But it's okay because this slave nation isn't going to say, because God is going to come and he's going to deliver all of your descendants. All of your descendants, the, everyone that's come from your family line, he's going to save them and he's going to raise up a deliverer. Esau, listen to me. He's going to raise up a deliverer and his name is going to be Moses. Can you say Moses? Moses. That's right, Esau. Uh, and also uh, you. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to deliver and he's going to deliver the people from bondage, all of your relatives, all of your descendants, and God's going to introduce himself to Moses on the backside of a mountain in a burning bush. And basically the conversation, Esau, is going to go like this. He's going to say to you, hey, Moses, it's nice to meet you. I am God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Now, Esau, you take this deal, you take this stew, you make this deal. You know how God's going to introduce himself? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Esau would be sitting there listening to you. and be like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, maybe I better not eat the stew. Esau gets better. A few thousand years after that, a few thousand years after that, God's going to do something bigger. God's going to address the issue of sin at its core. And what he's going to do is he's going to send his own son to earth, Esau. And when he comes to earth, he's going to do miracles and he's going to save the people. He's going to be their deliverer, Esau. And he's going to actually, Esau, I know you're hungry, but he's actually going to come through your lineage, your family lineage, thousands of years later. And he's going to call, be called Jesus. And this whole movement, this Jesus movement is going to be inspiring and so inspiring that there's a guy named Matthew who's going to write down the whole story as best as he remembers. He's going to find uh, eyewitnesses and he's going to enter and he's going to tell the story. And when Matthew gets done writing his book, guess what he's going to call it? He's going to call it Matthew because they weren't good at naming things back then. Okay. And he's going to write this book. And this is how Matthew, the author of Matthew, was going to start his book. He's going to say, this is the story of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Esau. Now, I know you're hungry, dude. You want to trade all that for a bowl of stew? Here's what I would suggest, Esau. It would be better that you had died than to make that trade, than to give up your birthright. But you see, there was no one there that day to help Esau reframe his appetites. And there won't be anybody standing next to you to help you reframe yours. This is a tension that's never going to go away for you and for me. It will never, ever, ever go away. You will always want more of whatever it is. You will always want more. And all of your appetites will whisper now, not later. And you must learn, as I must learn, we must learn now to reframe our appetites according to what God has called us to do and who he has called us to be. For some of you, you have an opportunity right now that you should do an about face and go the other direction. 
Because if you take that opportunity, you will be taking advantage of something and you will no longer be, you'll be pulled in a different direction, pulled away from your higher calling. There are places that you should never go that are bigger and better and there's more opportunity, but it will not be what you thought it was going to be and you should just stay put. But the, ap- the appetite for more, if we allow our appetites to dictate our future, then we're susceptible, just as susceptible, of making a bad trade. So, how do we make better decisions and fewer regrets? We've got to reframe in our brains. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit can help us, but we have to begin in reframing our brains, which leads us to the question. The question is, the legacy question, which is, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? What story about your life do you actually want to tell? And maybe do this. Maybe on your piece of paper, write down this. Write down 10 years from now, dot, dot, dot. 10 years from now, dot, dot, dot. And then write down whatever comes to mind. Whatever comes to your mind. 10 years from now, dot, dot, dot. What do you want to see God do in your marriage? 10 years from now, dot, dot, dot. What do you want to see God do with your children or your grandchildren? 10 years from now, What do you want to see God do with you professionally, in your community, in your church? In 10 years from now, what do you want to see? And when you do this, you are reframing your appetites for the long haul. You're reframing every single one of your appetites. And the clearer and more defined the frame, the less it gives our appetites an opportunity to sneak in and to lead us down a bad path. A second way that you can address this is just to answer these questions. We have a few questions for you. Four helpful questions. First one is this. What's your bowl of stew? If you can be honest with yourself, what is it? What is your bowl of stew? What's that thing right now that's being held out to you, and honestly, you're actually finding a hard time saying no to it? What is that for you? Number two, what are you talking yourself into? The brain is weird because the brain isn't the first one to think about the appetite. The appetite happens almost at a gut emotional level. And then the brain goes and looks for, the gut goes to the brain and says, hey, I need some supporting information to justify the decision I'm already going to make. And you you already know what this is. You, You know someone, you already know what you would tell someone who was in your situation. But you would say to yourself, you'll do things. I will do things. You'll say, oh, this is unique. Oh, this is unique. It's, you don't understand my set of circumstances. And this is the data I have. No, it's not that unique. It's not unique. You're not unique. Your, your situation's not unique. It just happens to be you. So you're justifying it. Uh, third question. What is it? Uh, no, third question. What are you contemplating right now that your spouse is uncomfortable with? Now, if you're not married and you're dating or you have someone in your life, what, this, one, this one hurts. So what's your spouse uncomfortable with? And you go to your spouse, oh, no, no, my spouse just doesn't understand. My fiance doesn't understand. My girlfriend, my boyfriend doesn't understand. They don't understand. You don't understand. It's not what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. Well, guess what? Maybe you don't understand. Maybe you don't understand this job, this relationship, this weird thing that you do when you spend time with that one person. Maybe you don't understand. What is it that you're doing that is not illegal and not immoral, but you hope nobody finds out about it? Ouch! Ron Blue, 
uh, is an encouragement to pastors. He says, never do uh, anything as a pastor that you wouldn't want to stand up in front of your congregation or the people you're accountable, if you're not a pastor, uh, the people that you're accountable to and have to explain. Never do anything in your personal life. It might not be illegal. It might not be immoral. Uh, no financial decision, any decision whatsoever. And this type of advice can help guide you and me. So we're like, okay, do I, would I really feel comfortable talking about this in front of people? Never do that. And all this leads to the legacy decision. So if we have the legacy question, this is the legacy decision, which is this. I will decide a story I'm proud to tell. I will not decide anything that makes me a liar for life. What's true of Esau is true for you. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through your life. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through your children. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through your current friends right here, right now. You have no idea what he wants to do in our community, in our church, in our world, in this town, through you. Esau had no idea. And no one is going to be standing around to warn you. So reframe, be willing to commit to tell a good story about your life 10 years from now. Don't trade your future for a bowl of stew. Now, I am so grateful that we follow a God uh, who understands us. And we follow a God who understands our appetites. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Christ committed himself to tell a story that would one day change all of our stories. And Jesus was tempted to give up. Jesus was tempted to give into his appetites. He was challenged to give into his own appetites. And he resisted giving into those appetites. And so thousands and thousands of years later, we retell the story of Jesus again and again because he conquered the problem of our appetites once and for all at the cross. He defeated them. And so even as we're learning to manage our own appetites, we can turn to Christ, who has died on the cross and has beaten the power of those things, and we can find the power to overcome the sinful parts of our appetites. Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, dealt with our appetites and everything that can destroy us and our families and our lives so that for every single person who turns to him and trusts him, they can receive forgiveness and healing and freedom from the appetites that so easily want to hurt us. You and I are not able to address this issue on our own. As far as you and I can get is we can reframe and start thinking about our lives for 10 years from now. But really, it is the power of Christ and what he did on the cross and through the resurrection. We need a Savior who can heal us from this. And in a sense, here's a sentence we talked about last week. And here's a sentence I want to remind you when it comes to reframing our appetites. And the sentence looks like this. Jesus died, so I don't have to fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. Jesus died, so I don't have to trade my future anymore. Jesus died so I don't have to to surrender to my appetites anymore. Jesus died so I don't have to experience impact bias or buyer's remorse anymore. Jesus died so I don't have to make a bad deal 
for a bowl of stew. You and I are not strong enough, but thank God we serve a Jesus, a Christ, a Messiah who loves us and who wants us to step into his power. Amen? Why don't we all stand?